Well, again, false teachers uh, in the church of Jesus Christ today. Last time we were together, we took a look at uh, that uh, end of the uh, first verse in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, uh, where Peter says that these men will bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. And one of the things that we took a look at last week when we considered these damnable heresies was the reality that these damnable heresies or these heresies of destruction, of these views about the person of Christ really uh, kind of surround or center on two things. And number one, a denial of Christ by way of his lordship as to who he is in his nature or a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. So that their lives were not reflecting what Jesus, who and what Jesus Christ is by way, of his, by way of ultimate Lord. And so this is something that we see in other places in the scripture as well. You know it's been my purpose throughout this uh, uh, section where we've been teaching on false teachers to incorporate as many parallel passages as I can. And the reason why is because I want your understanding about false teachers to be as broad as the scripture itself. When we read again that passage of scripture from Ezekiel this morning, you see the way that God views false prophets and false teachers. He has no patience with them, we might say. And again, when, when, uh, when, when these men fail, God himself takes up the cause of his people. And aren't you glad that God took up your cause in the person of Jesus Christ? And there you and I were scattered upon the mountains as it were, as lost sheep. And Jesus Christ came as the shepherd of our souls. How glad we are and how thankful we are for this. But again, these damnable heresies, as we were saying before, we looked at them in two ways the last time we were together. Number one, we considered the heresy as a doctrinal heresy or a heresy by way of the formal teaching that these men propounded. And their formal teaching would be something that would have denied the essential deity or the essential lordship of Jesus Christ. This was very prevalent in the early church. You know, we can get in at this time. We're not necessarily going to do it. But we can look at some of the formal Christological errors that were present in the early church. And what I mean by Christological errors were errors concerning the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. But this reality is reflected in a number of New Testament passages. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, we read this. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Now, this is a test. The, the Apostle John is giving in order that you and I might know if a person is teaching true, jo, true, uh, true doctrine. So John says this, Hereby we know the Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Here's a doctrinal test. If a man professes that Jesus Christ has truly come in the flesh, there is true deity and true humanity together in the one person. That person is of God, he says. It's a doctrinal test. But the doctrinal test give, uh, is presented not only by way of the affirmative, but also by way of the negative. Notice what he says in verse 3, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, whereby ye have heard that it should come, and even now is already in the world. You see the spirit of Antichrist already in the world. In the early church, there were these errors and heresies that surrounded the person of Jesus Christ. And so again, in this passage of scripture, we have a formal setting forth of the person of Jesus Christ by way of his nature. Doctrinal error is being dealt with here. The Apostle Paul goes on to say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. A very, a very useful passage of scripture for our day, I would say. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. Paul says this, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus... 
For if he that comes and preaches another Jesus, you mean there's another Jesus that religious people talk about? There most certainly is. And Paul goes on to say, that's not the Jesus that you believed in. The Jesus that you believed in is revealed in the pages of Scripture. And you've heard me say before that when a man embraces Jesus Christ by faith, when the gospel is preached to you, Christ is to be presented to you or you are to present Christ as he is offered in the gospel, not a Jesus of our own making. You see, it's very easy to, to make Jesus in our own, after our own image, isn't it? We want to be loving and kind, and so we present a Jesus that's loving and kind. Or maybe we're that kind of a sour person that always wants to see a condemnation, and we present a Jesus that's always condemning. We present, a Jesus, we present the Lord Jesus Christ as one who loves sinners and who gave himself in death for them, and who, by the same t- at the same token, pronounced judgment on all those who will not repent and believe the gospel. Listen to, listen to him speak to the Pharisees, the false teachers and prophets of his day. Woe unto you, Pharisees! Woe unto you, scribes! You see, again, we must present this Christ of Scripture. And so again, Peter is dealing with these false teachers, denying the Lord that bought them doctrinal errors they were propounding. But we also saw that there is the reality that there could be a denial of the Lordship of Jesus Christ by way of our personal practice. This is much closer to the bone, we might say. Because few of us will have the opportunity to publicly proclaim a false Christ. But every one of us will have the opportunity to see whether or not we are truly living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Is Christ my Savior? Yes, and my Lord. Do I know what it is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and live a life in humble submission to His holiness? That's what He calls you to and you know it. But what do false teachers do? They come in and they take the glory of the gospel and they twist it in such a way. Jude talks about this, doesn't he, in the fourth verse of his, of, his, of his little epistle. For certain men crept in unawares. That was something that we learned about by way of what was consistent with false teachers. They creep in unawares. Last week, and for those of you that were here last week in the evening service, you, you know that we uh, gave a quotation from, uh, from a, a false teacher of just a few years ago. And this woman said to her followers, she says, listen, when you go to speak to other people, don't speak about your distinctive doctrines. Just get them to accept you as, as you are. And then later on, you can bring these things. That's creeping in unawares. False teachers, false prophets crept in unawares. But listen to what Jude says. For certain people crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated to this condemnation, ungodly people. And this is what they did by way of their, by way of their uh, um, denial of the lordship of Christ. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny the only master and Lord Jesus Christ. What do these men do? They take the grace and the liberty of the gospel and they turn it into an occasion for sin, denying the Lord that bought them by way of practice. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5.13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Why does Paul say use not your liberty for an occasion, uh, as an occasion for the flesh? Because there were false teachers who were offering that to their hearers. That there were no moral demands in the gospel. That a man can live any way that he chooses. And these false teachers... These men were very ingenious because you know what they were doing? They figured out a way how to make money off of that message. And that's what Peter is bringing out to our attention here right now. That these men are unscrupulous. 
And these men, while they may seem to succeed for a while, these men are facing a certain ruin. And that's really the, what I might say the, um, uh, the title of our sermon. The title of our sermon is essentially this, false teachers, their temporary success and their eternal ruin. They appear to be successful at it for a time. Did you notice what Peter says there in, in, in the second verse? And many shall follow their pernicious ways. Many. And this is an amazing thing, isn't it? How can these guys succeed in the church when the New Testament is so clear as to the portrait of what a false teacher is? But they succeed. And we'll take a look at how this is possible and so what I want to do uh, this morning as I, as I work through this passage of Scripture is I'm going to set before you primarily this, this, this doctrine, this point, this, this primary principle. And it's this, though, evil, though the evil of false teachers may succeed in this life, they will face certain ruin in the life to come. They may, succeed, they may seem to succeed in this life, but they will face certain ruin in the life to come. I was just reading this morning about the... Um, about the sin of avarice. The sin of avarice? When was the last time you heard about the sin of avarice? It's basically the sin of greed. And uh, one man was talking about uh, all the things that he possessed, and he was talking with another man, and he pointed to all the things that he had, and he says, these are the things that make dying hard. What a sad view of life. What a sad view of life. You mean the things that Turn into dust or what makes dying hard? You mean the things that will rot away or what makes dying hard? And it kind of sheds a certain light on it when we think about it that way. But we know how near and dear our possessions are to us. And so again, these false teachers. What we're going to do today as we work through this passage of Scripture, we're going to look at verses 2 and 3. We're going to take a look at the, at the fact that there is a method by which these false teachers succeed. They have a particular method that they use. Uh, secondly, we're going to see that there is an immoral principle uh, that drives them in their work. And then thirdly, we're going to see that uh, there is a righteous but miserable end that awaits them. A righteous but miserable men that, uh, end that awaits them. You see, you really can't come across false teachers in the scriptures without reading something of the end that awaits them over and over again. Uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that last point because next week we're going to pick that up. We're going to take a look at the judgment of God historically on, on the angels that fell, on uh, the people of Noah's day, and on Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to see that God makes it very clear that he does judge sin. But we'll take that up uh, in due time. Well, the first thing that I want you to see here then in this passage of Scripture, and let's look at the passage of Scripture again, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment of not now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. I hope you've seen every one of the points of the outline that we're going to set before you. And number one, as I said before, their success, and many shall follow their, uh, many shall follow their, um, uh, their, their pernicious ways. Well, the first thing I want you to see is, number one, the fact that they do succeed. The fact that they do succeed. And as I said before, this is kind of surprising to us because there are so many passages in Scripture in the New Testament concerning the nature of false teachers. Probably at least a dozen very clearly, uh, very clearly, um, uh, very clear passages set forth the nature of these false teachers. And as I said before, it's surprising to see how successful they are. 
And one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is the question, how is it and why is it that God allows for even the potential of false teachers to be successful? I mean, we would think that way, wouldn't we? Here we are, the purchased bride of Jesus Christ. You remember what I said last week. You're a group of people that Jesus Christ bled for. How could something so near and dear to Jesus Christ be exposed to such falsehood? Well, I think there's some reasons that we can see in the scripture as to why God and his wisdom allows these things to happen. And the first thing that I would say to you is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this passage of scripture. And Moses is, is really writing here about the, uh, about the evaluation of prophets and about the examination of, of whether a man is a true or a false prophet. And listen to what he says here in Deuteronomy 13. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, well, then there's nothing like a miracle to make, to make people look, isn't there? Verse 2, And the sign or wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Now listen. For the Lord your God proves you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You see, when God allows for false prophets in the church, false teachers in the church. Part of that reason is to see whether or not we truly love God or we just love hearing religious words or we're just taken up with religious miracles. You see, there is a sense in which this testing is going on. And so when you hear men preach the word of God, you must listen critically. You must discern whether or not they are just tickling a fancy. You know how Peter, uh, Paul talks about tickling uh, itching ears. Or you must see and understand. Are they calling you to the theme and to the, and to the very essence of what the Bible calls us to? Moses goes on to say this. And this, is this, this next passage, is, this next verse is very important. Again, the Lord your God proves you to see whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Listen, ye, and, and listen, ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. There is a five-fold pattern of obedience that's laid out in this passage of scripture. Notice again the verbs here. You will walk after the Lord. You will fear him, keep his commandments, obey his voice, serve him, and cleave him. That I have fire. One, two, three. Wait again. However many there are. You see that there are these, there is this, this, this pattern of obedience that's laid out. And what I want you to see is that God is allowing in some way that's mysterious to us, God is allowing false teachers to come in to prove our hearts, to prove my heart. You ever stop and ask yourself the question, what are you in this thing for? What's this thing all about? Yes, I hope you're here with an understanding that by the grace of God, you will be spared the eternal torments of hell. But salvation is much bigger than that. Salvation is much larger than that. You of all the created order have the ability to glorify God in your body and in your mind. You can bring glory to God through the work of your hands. Through the things you think about, you can honor Christ. And so you see, there is a sense in which the false teacher may come in, and when he comes in, why is God letting, why is God allowing him to come in? That I might see for myself what my true motivations are. And so again, why does God allow these things? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. 
For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. You see, the presence of falsehood confirms the reality. I'll use a technical term of orthodoxy. Let's use a better term of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. You see, again, when the false teachers come and they, and they offer this, this extravagant lifestyle, and they say that, you know, that God's uh, purposes for you are for, are for you to live like me, healthy and wealthy, going to heaven with a full bankroll. People believe this. People teach this stuff. And people believe him as well. So this test then that God gives in his word, well, I'd ask you the question, what is the basis for this test? How do you know whether or not you are, again, on the right side of this test? Well, I would say this, that the basis of this test is faithfulness to the revealed will of God. To be faithful to God is to be faithful to his word, not to our own insights, not to the most persuasive creature, not to the culture. We're going to take a look next week at the, at the examples of God's judgment historically. And, you know, we're going to see the angels that kept not their first estate. You remember that, that account in Scripture where, where the angels were able to be persuaded to join with Lucifer in their rebellion against God Almighty. How does that happen? How does, how does a creature of such superior knowledge, having a clear vision of the nature of, the nature of God, be swayed away? To rebel, against the, to rebel against their creator. How does that happen? Well, they listened to the most persuasive preacher, didn't they? And the most persuasive preacher in heaven on that day was Satan himself. So I'm telling you right now, you don't, the, the test of your genuine faith is not because you listen, quote unquote, to the most persuasive preacher. It's not by going along with the, with the, with the culture either. The next example is going to be Sodom and Gomorrah. We talk about a group of people that went along with the culture, that defined the culture, and the judgment of God came on them. Nor is it, uh, uh, again, uh, nor is it, um, nor is it, uh, uh, to, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't put it that way. Um, it's also uh, based on the fact that we listen to the true word of God. The people in those days, they had a true word from God, didn't they? But they failed to listen to it. So again, what do we see by way of the, by way of the test? What is the basis of the test? The basis of the test is your obedience, and I'll put it this way too, your love of the revealed will of God in Scripture. Do you love the Word of God? Do you have a, do you have a desire for more of it? Is there a sense in which you read it and you allow it to convict your conscience of, of where you and I come short? Oh yeah, there's that passage of Scripture again. Oh yeah, there's that. Oh Father, you need to help me in this. Oh Father, you need to forgive me for that. Oh Father, by your Spirit, cause my heart to be inclined to your Word. You see, all these things, and why do we say this? Because the reality of false teachers is an ever-present danger to the church of Jesus Christ. And these men are so subtle as to know how to use the word of God in order to pry you away from your money. And that's what it's all, when it's all said and done, that's all they're interested in. We'll see that when we get the motivation. We're still under the method. And the thing I want you to see then, first and foremost, by way of their method, is notice what they do. Again, verse 2. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. That's the fact of their success. Now we're getting to the how of their success. By reason of whom the way of, uh, by reason of whom the, the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Verse 3. And through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you. Well, what I want you to see here is that their success in the life of individuals is, is in a very interesting way based on granting or giving a religious garment 
to a particular sin. These men are able to put religious clothes on sin that God has denounced. Did you see what he says here? Again, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. I think the ESV says many shall follow their sensual ways. And the word sensuality here, or pernicious, or actually the word sensuality is what I'll stick with. The word sensuality is kind of interesting here because it refers to not only what we would commonly term sexual sins, but it refers to all types of materialistic sins given over to an excess. So it may be, again, materialism, crass materialism. It may be outright greed. It may be indulgence in sexual sin. At the end of the day, what's happening here is essentially this. These men are drawing individuals after them because they are, as I said before, giving a religious justification for particular sins. Remember what Jude said? They turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. How, how, how can that happen? How can a God who in, of, who in of himself is holy, who sent his son who was the holy spotless lamb of God, how can he have a, a way of salvation that allows for every type of sin? He can't. But these religious, these false teachers are so good at what they do that they're able to present this type of sin in religious garb. An old Puritan, Thomas Brooks, says this, These men eye your goods more than they eye your good. And mind the serving of themselves more than the saving of your soul. So long as they have your substance, they care not that Satan has your soul. That they, may, that, that they may better pick your purse, they will hold forth such principles as are very indulgent to the flesh. How do these guys do it? How do these guys make a virtue out of vice? They do it though, don't they? You hear some of these men and their extravagance. You see some of these men and their extravagance. The claims that are made. And people think, well, this is what this is what godliness is all about. And through this way they beguile individuals. Let some sin be given religious justification, and it will readily be accepted. Let some, again, work of the flesh, as we see in, in Galatians chapter 5, be given a religious dress, and it will readily be accepted. And that's what we see happening here. So again, they're, they're licentious, they're sensual ways, again, are the means by which these men are able to uh, persuade those that they do. Now the word here uh, for sensual is a word that can, be, that can mean a licentious. It has the overtones of immorality to it. It really uh, kind of focuses on uh, excess in any one of these areas. And so again, it can, have, it can have a sexual overtone to it. It can have a materialistic overtone to it. But the idea here is this excess in all of that. And so what these men are able to do is the following. That in the name of Christian liberty and gospel grace, they promote and permit the very sins that were, be to, that were to be repented of. In this way, they gain the following and then gain from their following. You see what's happening here? They gain a following and then they gain from the following. And what these men do, Peter explains in greater detail. Look here in verses 18 through 22. Listen again. Everything that I've just said, I hate to put it that way, but everything that, that I've just said, uh, look in verses 18 through 21 now. Listen to this. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, these men can preach. When they speak great swelling words of vanity, listen, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, 
Those that were clean escaped from those who live in error. In other words, their followers once had come out of that debauched lifestyle. And while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. They don't even know it. They walk around with a chain that will drag them to hell and they think they're free. The very, the very freedom they think they have is the very chain that binds them to hell. Of whom, uh, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is bought in, brought in the bondage. Listen, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are in, again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse for them the beginning. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to have turned from the holy commandment delivered unto them. You see what these men are able to do. May God give the church of Jesus Christ grace. May God give us clear eyes to see what gospel holiness truly is. May God keep us from that view of religion that has its measure in the material things that I gain. God give us grace. And that's their method. This is what we see. This is how they do it. The other way that we the other method that we see that they use is not only do they not only do they use, as it were, aspects of man's fallen nature to appeal to a large group, they use, are you ready for this? They use what the King James calls feigned words. What in the Greek is what we would sound familiar to our words, to our ears, they use plastic words. Plastic. The, the Greek word there is the word where we get the word plastic. And you know what you can do with plastic, right? Make any shape you want out of it. Make it look any way that you want. And it seems as though what these men are able to do with plastic words, they're able to kind of create a, a pry bar, I might say, that, that leverages itself on an aspect of man's fallen nature. And with those plastic words, moves those individuals into error. This is what these men do. Again, they, they succeed through plastic words. Look again at verse 18. For, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they're empty words. The words have no true spiritual meaning to them. They are not, they are not of the substance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may be the shell of words, but the substance of them is lacking. And they are using these words only in order to gain a particular end. And as I said before, their end is, is really the separation of you from your goods. And so again, Peter goes on again to make this case of, of plastic words. Listen to some of the translations that we have for this, for this little phrase uh, of, um, uh, of um, what does he say here? Um, where, he, where he talks about the, uh, I, I'm so stuck on the plastic words, uh, where, where he talks about these, uh, these arguments that he uses. One, trans, that they use, one translation says this, they will use good sounding arguments to exploit you. Another translation says this, with well-tuned words, they will make merchandise of you. Another translation says this, with words of deceit, like traitors, they will do business in souls. The, the, the one translation that I kind of find most uh, uh, memorable, however, is not an English translation. It's a Latin translation. And in the Latin, the translation for these feigned words is the Latin term fictus verbis. Fictus verbis. Words of fiction. It almost sounds like it belongs in a legal, diction, a legal dictionary, doesn't it? Again, fictus verbis. False words. 
Words of fiction. That's what these men use. And so their method, again, is to appeal to something in the flesh. The method that they use, secondly, is to use words falsely, to give them any shape or form that they will. Now, what these men do, they are able to stir up maybe your religious emotions. They, they may make you feel good about yourselves. Uh, and they, make you, they may make you feel happy when you're listening to them. But they will not make you feel like the Apostle Paul, who in Romans 7 said, Oh, wretched man that I am. The ultimate purpose of all their religious speech, their preaching, in other words, is designed to remove you from your money or whatever else will gratify their sensual needs. That's why when Paul speaks about his preaching, he says this in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, For neither we at any time use flattering words. It wasn't here buttering, buttering up the congregation. It was all about speaking the truth of God in, in Christ. The same thing again in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 16. It's kind of interesting because what Peter's enemies were accusing him of, Peter's enemies were accusing him of making up stories in order again to gain followers. That's why when Peter says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Remember when we studied that? This, remember what, 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 when we preached on that passage of scripture, what I said was this. You have not followed cunningly devised fables. You have followed divinely revealed truth. And so again, this idea of, of, of trying to persuade uh, or trying to, to, uh, to, to, to catch away by way of false words. 2 Timothy uh, 4 verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That little phrase, itching ears, is a figure of speech for basically an insatiable curiosity to see what they're saying. I don't know if you've ever experienced that or not. You know, some of these guys on TV are as false as the day is long. But you're just kind of curious to see what they're saying. This is itching ears. Stay away from it. And so again, false, these false teachers. Now, what's the effect of their... We've seen the method. Uh, the method, again, is to appeal to the flesh. The method, again, is to use these plastic words, these fictus verbis. What's the, uh, what's the end of their, um, uh, of, their, uh, of their false teaching? Notice what we see here. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. These men are a blight on the church. These men bring, uh, again, uh, a disrepute to the, to the cause of Christ. Uh, these men, again, in order to inflate themselves and in order to have more of this world's riches, they besmirch the holy name of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is this is because we could make a case that while they are not in the true church of Jesus Christ, what's the true church of Jesus Christ? The true church of Jesus Christ is that body of believers throughout the world of whatever religion, of whatever Christian denomination they, be, they may belong to who are truly joined to Jesus Christ by faith. It's an invisible body of people in the sense that we don't truly know who's in there other than the fact of what, how they present themselves. But then there's the visible body of Christ. What's the visible body of Christ? You're looking at it. And so I hope and I pray, I expect, I believe that, that all of us here are truly converted. I can't take that for granted though. You must deal with the call of the gospel every time you hear it. And so these men, while they belonged to the visible church, did not belong to the true, what we would call invisible church. But the world judged them. Because they belong to the visible church, they judge them as being in the church. And therefore, because their lifestyle was so contrary to the claims of holiness, even the world said, those guys are Christians? That's what a Christian... And again, the way of truth is evil spoken of. It's blasphemed. Brothers, brothers and sisters, do you see the way that we live in public has great implications? Do you see that 
that those who we listen to by way of uh, so-called instruction influence us greatly? Do you see that if in the name of religion I only seek to uh, enrich myself, that I will be a blight on the church of Jesus Christ? And you might not think, you might think, well, this all, this all has to be hyperbole. I mean, nobody can be that stupid to follow these guys. Nobody can fall into that way of thinking where, where they're going to bring in all this kind of sensuality under the guise of religion. Don't believe it. You know this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to the Corinthians, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind that is not tolerated even by the pagans for a man to have his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. What a passage of scripture. You see, here with the Corinthians, whatever teaching they got a hold of, they thought it was fine that a man could be living in that kind of an immoral state. And we think to ourselves, are you serious? Hey, my friends, look what goes on in the name of Christianity today. What is not only allowed, not, not sure put it this way, what is not only overlooked, what is not only allowed, what is even encouraged in churches in our day. There are things that go on in churches that even the unsaved are, are thinking, you have to be out of your mind. And so what Paul is saying here then is this. Scandalous sin, when it is accepted in the church, brings a blight, brings reproach to the name of Jesus Christ. And so again, don't think that you and I are, 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 are somehow insulated from this. Again, let a, let a man come. Let us, let us turn on the TV or the radio or see over the internet some man who just as persuasive as anything. A some man who seems to have all these kind of biblical arguments to back up what is an unbiblical message. And you can be swept off your feet. Oh, I thank God for the, for the reality of the doctrine of election. You know that passage in Scripture where the Lord Jesus Christ said, even if it were possible, even the elect would be swayed by these false teachings. But the Lord Jesus Christ is able to keep his own. His own undergo that test as it were. His own look, for, uh, look to, to stay to the word of God, to stay faithful to the word of God. Now this, this, this way of designating the church of Jesus Christ is the way of truth. You have to understand that in the book of Acts, this was very commonly used. The way of truth. Do you know, and I think you do, that your Christian life is more than just a decision you make. It's a way that you live. You understand? Now, not the way that you live is, is going to make you saved, but because you are saved, you will live in a particular way. And the scripture calls it the way of truth. The way of truly finding, again, communion with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. The way of truly walking in a way that gives honor and glory to God. But these men, again, they were a blight on the truth. They were a, they were a stain on the church of Jesus Christ. So again... These men caused the church to be evil spoken of. Now I have, to, I have to introduce something of an interesting contrast here. Because we may be inclined to think that if we live godly, that the world will never speak evil of us. <laughs> you know that's not true. You know that's not true. But it's interesting. There's this evil speaking that goes, that we see. On the one hand, the, the truth is blasphemed because of the way these men are living. But on the other hand, I want you to understand that if you live godly in this world, people will speak evil of you as well. Listen again to what, to what Peter says here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them 
to the same excessive right speaking evil of you. What does this mean? And again, let me say this. I, I think this may apply maybe to, to, to the younger that are here today more so than to the older, although it applies to us as well. You know, when we're, when we're younger, we're, we're more concerned about, you know, kind of fitting in with, with, with a larger group. It's very difficult when we're a little younger to be standing there by ourselves. And Peter is saying here, look, if you stay faithful to Christ, you're going to have friends that just think you're kind of like odd, weird, out of your mind. That's exactly what the text says. Wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. A couple things here. Do you notice that word excess again? Remember that word sensuality has a connotation of excess in any degree? So again, your friends may think, well, look, why aren't you coming with me in this? Why aren't you doing this? Boy, that's a really boring life that you're living. And again, because of that, they speak evil of you. After a while, if you continue to hold your ground, Oh, you know, so-and-so won't come out with us anymore, and so-and-so won't do this anymore. Oh, they're just an old funny dad or whatever, whatever they call kids nowadays that aren't going along with the crowd. Who knows? But again, you understand that to be reproached for the sake of Christ is an honorable thing. I'll say that again. To be reproached for the name of Christ is an honorable thing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute and say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Hey, listen, if the world's going to speak evil against you, may they speak evil against you for standing for Christ in a fallen world rather than living in such a way as to where they say, and that's what a Christian is supposed to be. So you see the effects of these men and their teaching on the church. So we've looked at their, we've looked at their methods and now we come to their motivation. Now, We'll probably move a little quicker here in this, pa- in this section, although what I have to say is very important, not because I'm saying it, but because of what the scriptures say here. So to transition from the first point to the second point, I would say this. Number one, sensuality is their method. Number two, greed is their motive. It's that simple. It's that crass. Greed is their motive. Look at verse three here again. And through covetousness, that's it, greed. That's what covetousness is. If you want to get a little more fancy, you can use the word avarice. That's the same thing. It is this unbridled desire for more and more and more. And the desire for more and more and more just doesn't stay with money. It can be for power. It can be for fame. It can be for reputation. It can be for one of a number of things. And again, what these men are doing is that they are seeking the gain by way of what you have. Again, that's why Peter will say they will exploit you for these things. And so let's take a look because this becomes very, very important. Now, when Peter says here, and through covetousness, really the idea is in covetousness. One commentator says it like this. Uh, Covetousness surrounds these false teachers as an atmosphere. They continually breathe it. In other words, these guys live in covetousness. They want more and more. That's, the, that's their very nature. Their action is devoted, to, uh, is devoted to covetousness, and that's always what they are seeking to do. They are seeking to gain more and more. And they are doing it by way of exploitation. And it's, uh, it's interesting to see, again, how they're doing it. As I said before, they are seeking to gain followers in order that they gain from their followers. The most important thing about you to them 
is what you have. It's that crass. It's that simple. Now, covetousness, this word, again, as I said before, has the idea of, of, of greed, avarice, uh, 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 avarice, this always this desire for more. And it's kind of interesting that in the New Testament, oftentimes we have what are known as a catalog of vices or a catalog of sins. And what that is, that is where one of the writers of the New Testament will just give a listing of sins. Sometimes you have a catalog of virtues. And, and, and it will be just a listing of the virtues. We see these two things brought very close together in the book of Galatians, don't we? We have the works of the flesh and we have the fruit of the spirit. The works of the flesh are these and, and you have the listing of them all. And, in, and almost invariably, when the, when the list of vices are given in scripture, covetousness or greed is always there. It is one of the predominant marks of the works of the flesh. And so again, and this is why I'm saying this. This is what makes it so unbelievable that these men can have a success. Something that is warned against over and over again that they can use or they can have as a motivation and not be discovered for it. Listen to these things that we have here. Number one, understand this in regard to covetousness. Listen to this. Christians are to have no association with men of this sort in the church. That is that is strong and harsh language. I'll say it again. Christians are to have no association with men of this sort in the church. And you say, are you just making that up? Are you trying to be real, real hard just for, or, you know, are you, are, you, so to be, are you firing for effect? Are you just trying to get, you know, some kind of a response? Listen to this passage of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or idolater, or idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such one, know not to eat. Now, notice here again the uh, the, uh, the the way the the words are given here. It's not a man who has fallen one time into, into sexual sin. It's not a it's not it's not a man one time who has been tempted into into covetousness. It's not a man one time who has railed against another man. But it's it, these 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 descriptions or these words are given as descriptive categories of individuals. A covetous man who will not repent of his covetousness. A drunkard, a, a, drunkard, a, a drunkard who will not give up his sin. An extortioner who always thinks he's doing the right thing by, by, by wrenching money out of someone. And so again, this sin is a very, very serious sin. Now, by, the, by their covetousness, and this is all in the context of false teachers, by their covetousness, you have to understand, false teachers exclude themselves from the kingdom of God. Again, I'm not saying this just for a fact. Listen to the passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in our day, we oftentimes, we go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, don't we? Again, no, where the Scripture is very clear that, that those who engage in homosexual practice shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are homosexual, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We have to say it, it's there. But we can't stop there. Because the scripture says the same thing about, about, the, about the covetous man. And what I'm saying to you is this. Since false teachers are motivated by covetousness, they, by way of their inner motivation, cut themselves off from the kingdom of God. How do these men find any place in the church? Going on. Other passages. Ephesians 5, verse 5. For this ye know, 
that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Like immorality and impurity, covetousness must be strictly kept out of the life of the church. False teachers bring it in the front door. Well, maybe not the front door. Either they creep in unawares, but they bring it in. A Christian pastor or a Christian teacher is never to be guilty of this sin. You pray for your pastors. You pray for your preachers. 1 Timothy 3.3, not given the wine, not a strikey, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Titus 1.7, for a bishop must be blameless, the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given the wine, no striker, not given the, given the filthy lucre. What's this lucre? What's filthy lucre? It's money, especially when it's gained dishonestly. Peter says the same thing. Feed the flock. Do it willingly, not for filthy lucre. Kind of interesting when, when uh, Jethro was, uh, was giving counsel to Moses there in Exodus 18. And uh, he says to Moses, look, you've got to pick out some men to help you in this. And when he lays out the qualifications for these men, listen to what he says. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. You see, covetousness and, and leadership should be worlds and worlds apart. So again, covetousness also also is a sin that we are called to put to death. Colossians 3, put to death therefore that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Listen to this. Uh, One uh, one, uh, uh, woman um, who works for for an organization that oversees uh, financial matters uh, a woman by the name of uh, Deborah Bortner, she works for the North American Securities Administration. She says this, quote, I have seen more money stolen in the name of God than in any other way. I have seen more money stolen in the name of God than in any other way. Why? Because unscrupulous, covetous men who know the weak points of human nature and who form plastic words to make a pry bar to separate people, Christians, from their money. That's what they're all about. It is that crass. It is that simple. Now, it's interesting, too, because even in the early years of the church, the church was warned against this. Some of you are familiar with uh, uh, one of the uh, sub-apostolic writings uh, uh, known as the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve. Uh, there's some questions about the sub-apostolic writings uh, uh, a week or so ago. And listen to what uh, the teaching of the Twelve says in regard to, to these itinerant ministers that we preached about uh, back in the summer. And the first is this, And when the apostle leaves, he is to take nothing except bread until he finds a next night lodging. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. However, not everyone who speaks in the Spirit is a prophet. But only if he exhibits the Lord's way. By his conduct, therefore, will the false prophet and the true prophet be recognized. If any prophet teaches the truth, yet does not practice what he teaches, he is a false prophet. Of course, now with these false teachers, they, they, they practice what they teach. They, they live it up to the hilt. I, I, I heard a guy say to his congregation, and something of a, you know, you could tell he was trying to affirm a point that he made. He says, go out back. Take a look at my Bentley. It's all paid for. I thought to myself, 
Friends, if you go out back and take a look at that Bentley, go out the back, keep walking, and never back, and never back in the front door. <laughs> and then lastly, what we see is this. And again, this is very important. And, and, and notice how apropos this is to our day. But if anyone should say in the Spirit, if anyone should say in the Spirit, give me money or anything else, do not listen to him. But if he tells you to give on behalf of others who are in need, let no man judge him. You see, again, how do these men find a place in the church? Well, how do we, expo- how do we avoid their exploitation? I think a passage of Scripture that's very important in this regard is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. I tried to quote this passage of Scripture a couple weeks back, but, it, but as I think through what, uh, it really didn't come out as clearly as I wanted it to, so I kind of want to revisit this passage of Scripture. And what I want you to see here is this, is that there is, a, there is, a, uh, there, there is an end to uh, the proclamation of the gospel and the teaching of the Word of God. It has a, a particular pattern to it, we might say. Uh, again, by, Paul says to Timothy, you know, you have obeyed, you have obeyed that pattern of sound words words. Again, he talks about this is a faithful saying. And so again, there is a pattern, there is an end to Christian teaching. And in 1 Timothy chapter five, chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says this, and this is from the ESV, he says, the aim of our charge, all right, the end of what I'm trying to get to, the, the focus of all of my preaching, he says, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So when you hear preaching, Preaching is designed to move you to true biblical love, not love as the world defines it, but true biblical love. Number two, a a pure conscience. Number three, sincere faith. Let's take a look at each of these things. True preaching then should move in a design to compel you to to, to live a life of love as defined by the scriptures. What is that life of love defined by the scriptures? Our Lord makes it clear for us, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy mind, and with all thy soul, and love thy neighbor as thyself. This is the love that the scripture calls us to. Secondly, all preaching should lead us and move us to holiness and purity of life. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, Excuse me, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. When's the last time you've heard a false teacher say that? Fall after peace and holiness. You hear him say, if you want a blessing, send. If you want a blessing, give. But when have you heard them say, without holiness, no man will see the Lord? You see, the development of a, of a biblically informed conscience is the aim of preaching as well. Again, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. Again, the conscience is such a vital place for the Christian The conscience, again, so important. The conscience coming really only under the word of God by way of a directing influence in the life. Paul says this, holding faith in a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Well, there are so many other things that we can talk about. And I'll just hold off on the third point by way of the misery because, again, I've I've gone too long here. But I do want to... I do want to, I do want to give you some some points of application, and this will take a little, you know, this will take maybe a few minutes as well. Please be be patient with me uh, here. So when we come to our applications, what I want you to notice is this: number one, since many will follow their pernicious ways, do not be discouraged that there are many who do not walk with you on the true way. Since many follow their pernicious ways. Don't be surprised when you look around and see not many with you. But remember this. 
You have a small family. Even though many will not walk with you, you have a small family of brothers and believers in Christ. You certainly do. Number, excuse me, number two, you have that unexpected co-worker or neighbor who walks with you in the true way. You've come across them, haven't you? You're at work sometimes thinking you're the only one there. And come to find out some Christian very much keeping to himself loves the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way you do. It's a blessing along the, along the way. But thirdly, you have this. Most of all, you have Christ who walks with you in the way, which is his way. The second point then of application is as follows. If false teachers and their teachers are marked by teaching that allows for conduct, that causes a stain on the way of Christ and of holiness, only follow that teaching that will lead you to Christ-likeness and the holiness. Expect and even demand of those you listen to a life that will not bring reproach to Christ. Thirdly, if false teachers are motivated by greed, have nothing to do with those charlatans who make material gain the sign of God's blessing upon you. If one of them tells you, again, again the, 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 the new Bentley thing, again, and we're, we're commanded to turn away from these guys. Paul says this, for, for no, also in the last days perilous times shall come. He goes on to, to explain uh, these false teachers. He says, they have a, formally go- a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And he says this, from such turn away. You are commanded to turn away from false teachers. If false teachers will use plastic words to exploit you for their gain, make sure that you know the true teaching of the word of God, which is forever settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. If lastly, if false teachers and those who follow them await a day of awful but righteous judgment, stay as far away from them and their teaching as you can. Now, I leave you with this question. What if you are not sure if you are listening to or watching a false teacher, Let, let's, you know, let's be honest here. Sometimes we come across these false teachers and we didn't know they were false teachers in our, maybe in our newness to the faith, maybe in their appeal of their personality, maybe in something that we saw that kind of captured our attention. What if, what if, what if that's the case? What do you do? Well, let me say this. If there is any question or doubt, do not listen to him or her. You understand what I'm saying? If you're listening to this person and you're thinking something's just not right here, if you're observing this person, now let me say this, Peter gets into all the ethical evaluations of what a false teacher is. Very rarely, if he ever, does he get into the doctrinal element of it. He's talking about the ethical thing. In other words, by their fruit, you can, you can know them. If you see a lifestyle that is inconsistent, whether by way of excess or by way of open sin, stay away from them. Again, if there is any, uh, if there is any question or doubt, do not listen to him or her. Turn off the TV, the radio, or the internet, and don't let sinful curiosity get the better of you. They may make you laugh. They may make you feel good. You may even determine not to send them even another penny. That's fine. But unless you can stand before God and say that that preacher led me to a true holiness to become more like Christ in humility, self-denial, and obedience to the revealed will in God, turn away from them.